Welcome to another episode of Class Talkers. I'm Tim Welch. Today we feature a fascinating discussion about economics, communications, and suicide in the world's largest democracy. Dr. Rahul Rashtogi is a professor in the State University of New York at Oneonta Communication Studies Program, and his research into the plight of Indian farmers provides a remarkable series of insights into human nature. Listen. So, you know, I'm, I'm fascinated with India in general, Rahul, and sure. um, I keep wondering if uh, it's true that I've read that there are thousands of languages mm-hmm. in the Indian subcontinent. Right. Does that mean it was a good thing that the British conquered it and, <laughs> and provided a, a common language? Right. right. Um, so, yeah, it is true that, uh, that there's, there's, tremendous, there's a tremendous variety of languages in India. Um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a local um, adage that goes, um, if you move, I'm just translating, and this is a rough translation, uh, you go so many miles and it changes the taste of water, and then you move another mile and it changes the taste of your mouth. I mean, it, you speak a different tongue, uh. right? Um, but yes, it is true that, that uh, India has a, has a tremendous variety of languages. Um, that must actually, create all kinds of challenges when it comes to it, it does. teaching and the media. Yes. And the, it does, it does, it absolutely does. So in that sense, um, India, English is what is called uh, the lingua franca of, of India. Like everyone kind of understands and it and, and works in it in terms, of, um, in terms of official work and things like that. Uh, but, there are, but there are at least, there are at least a minimum of 26 languages that exists in, with their army and navy of publications and speeches and cinema and, and poetry and, and oral traditions and written traditions and all of that um, in India. Actually, it's an interesting fact that not many people know India has a national flag, India has a national animal, India has a national sport, but India does not have a national language. Hmm. There is no national language in India. The, I- the ideal system of language in India is what they call a three-language system. So first is your first language. That's what you hear in the house and you Hindi, just grow Pujambi, up. Yes, so, so those Pujambi. are the most common languages, the, the language in which your parents talk. So for me, it was, it was Hindi because my parents were speak Hindi speakers. The second language is a language that's spoken in your kind of like your community. So in my case, it was Hindi and Urdu overlapped, but in many cases, it'll be a different language. And the third, of course, is English, the language that you go to school in. So it's so so India came up with a, with a three language formula so that uh, India stops what is very commonly called language imperialism, the idea of one language and the people of one language just dominating the entire political spectrum, cultural spectrum, so on and so forth. So today, India has many different movie industries, many different many different poetical traditions, and all of this in many different languages, and it does render some some sort of challenges. Because then you're like, I don't understand this, I don't understand you, and you're a hundred miles from my house. Really? But also, it creates so much more diversity and variety, and just so much more um, views to look at the world, that I think it also becomes an intrinsic strength. Because diversity is strength. 
as we all Well, of course, and and it, when you mentioned movies, I thought of Bollywood yeah. and the fact that that's really, they create more movies there than Hollywood or anywhere else in yes. the world. Yeah. And so many of them have music as an integral part of it and dance, yeah. uh, perhaps to overcome the language barriers. Yeah. Yes, so so one of the things that Bollywood is like, that is the one way in which in which critics say that language imperialism has actually happened because it hasn't happened in a political way that everyone will have to learn Hindi regardless of where you are. But it has happened because Bollywood is just so big and it's so fun and it's so fancy and that everyone just like watches movies and they love going to movies. So kind of, everyone kind of gets Hindi or the kind of Hindi, which is not really like the, it's not a, a chaste Hindi. It's a very, um, it's a very conversational Hindi mm-hmm. that is used in those movies. And people understand that. But along with Bollywood, there are very well-established other film industries. Like the Tamil film, film industry, for instance, is just incredibly big. And uh, people have tremendous As in Sri Lanka? Followings. Sorry? As in Sri Lanka? So, so Tamil is a language that is also spoken in Sri Lanka. But but in Tamil Nadu, the state of Tamil Nadu in India, it like the Tamil uh, the Tamil is spoken, and Tamil movie industry is an amazingly amazingly big movie industry. There's mm. Tamil industry, there's Bengali industry, there's there's Malayalam industry, that's there's Uriya um, industry, there's uh, Punjabi movie industry, and all of these regional languages have, have started sort of started making their own kind of movies, and that's that's interesting. Very often, it is always all clumped together in Bollywood, but Bollywood is the biggest player, but it's not the only player on the Interesting. Scene. Yeah. And perhaps they all started to try to preserve their own culture. They try to do that through their own means. And sometimes like this, like the idea of stardom, you know, like the, the idea of fanfare and fan following, and you, you have these big Bollywood stars like Amitabh Bachchan or Shah Rukh Khan or, or, or all of these people. And in the South, down South, you have, you have like Tamil movie stars. And those people, the, the fan following there is equally big, if not bigger, than fan following in, in like Bollywood. So it's just, it's, it's almost a, so when, when, when a Tamil movie star releases a movie, it's almost like a festival. Like people are in, it, they're not excited to go to a movie. They are celebrating that they're going to a movie. <laughs> and it's kind of like that. You know, like, like what, what we have at Super Bowl. You know, it's like right. kind of like a celebration that there's this going on. It's kind of like that. When when star movies are 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 released, so India has many different movie cultures, and each movie culture is also pretty unique in its own ways. And when you say big, I think of India as being big. There are five times as many Indians as there are Americans. Right, that's true. And uh, and and a growing economic force in the world, the the largest democracy in the yes. world. Yeah. What's the impact of that? Uh, on the rest of the world, and how is India handling the growth spurt that it right. seems to be going through? Right. Yeah. So that's a that's a very good question. So I think you're talking about two things like economics and and democracy. Uh, let's talk about economics first, and then we'll get to democracy. Okay. Um, I think economics is is very interesting in India. So like up until the 1990s, India hadn't jumped onto the bag onto the wagon of what they call liberalization. The idea of privatization, less state control, more private enterprise. The state is going to bet on private players, and it's the private players that are going to be that are going to spearhead progress. Because right? in my lifetime, um, India was much closer to the Soviet Union than it was yes. to the United States, yes, that's both true. economically and politically. That is right, and and then and that's why like 1991 uh, represents a big sort of shift in that trajectory, and India sort of 
kind of sensed that, uh, you know, this is not the best for us. So we've got to veer away from this and start on a different road. And that's when the, the really the liberalization, privatization, all of this began. And today, as fruits of that moment, we see a lot of um, economic growth in India, a lot of, um, a lot of Forbes billionaires in the top 20, 30, 50 would be Indians. And they make a lot of money. They have, they have very successful enterprises. We have, of course, the, um, the Indian Silicon Valley that, that sort of sucks in a lot of... Uh, Mumbai. Uh, in Bangalore, actually. Bangalore. Yeah. And uh, it sucks up a lot of, sucks in a lot of um, um, software related work and enterprise. Um, and India has created those kinds of opportunities, but also uh, for, for whatever reasons, and I think this, these are just faults of just systemic faults of, of unbridled industry, India also has, India also has, has this, this other side to it, which is kind of very problematic in the sense that you will go to India and you'll see a, an amazing mall um, which will have like Louis Vuitton and, and Adidas and whatever brands you might think of. And right next to the mall will be like a sprawling slum. And India, the, the story of privatization, liberalization in India is a story of a lot of economic progress, but also along with that, also a lot of destitution. Because as we know in the US, when we think of, of uh, capital, we, we understand that the top five, 10 percent hold a disproportionately large fraction of resources. And that, that sort of has happened also in India. The difference being that in the US, we have, we have the basic public systems in terms of public health, public education in place. So, so the people that are, that are kind of not included are not so desperately left behind. And in India, because, because the socialist movement couldn't take ground as such, as much as I should have, as it should have had, there are there are these like left behind people in India. So 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 economic progress in India is amazing, but also comes with, at at a very weird kind of a human cost. So that's that's the two and two together. I mean, in many ways, this is occurring in China as well. They have a hybrid form of capitalism and and what might have been communism mm-hmm. before that, but certainly uh, that doesn't exist in China, and you still have this. A uh, tremendous disparity between the haves and the have-nots between the coast and the interior. How is that differentiated in India? Uh, you must—I mean—are are all the billionaires in the major cities? Uh, so, so, so globally, um, in, we are moving. We, I think, I'm not—I'm I'm not super sure on this, but I think 2020, if the trends continue, 2020 will be the first year in human civilization where humanity would be, more of humanity would be living in the cities than in the villages, than in the country. Hmm. That's, a, that's a big, that's a big moment in human civilization. And India is also on that track, that there's this large scale movement from the country to the cities and the, and the metropolises and so, and so on and so forth. So, and, and as you can imagine, when that migration happens, people who are moving have to leave a lot of their assets behind. So people who are moving to of bigger cities are people are people who are poor. They're destitute. They work as as construction labor, odd jobs, um, things like manual labor, um, things like lower level um, janitorial work, and things like that. So yes, it is true that most of of uh, India's wealth is concentrated in cities. 
But those cities are also uh, pockets of widespread poverty as well. It is, it is very interesting that in, India, was a cult, India was a country of villages. You know, Gandhi did not lead uh, the elite of Mumbai and New Delhi to revolution. Gandhi led the country to revolution. India was always a country of agriculture and villages and so on and so forth. But now, steadily, for the past three decades, the share of the number of people in the workforce that depend on agriculture has been steadily declining. So I think right now it's somewhere around somewhere around 45 to 50 percent, which is still pretty sizable, but it used to be 65 percent two decades right. back. So now we are seeing a movement of people away or workforce away from agriculture, um, country living, traditional living, and so on and so forth. So most of the wealth, of course, most of the wealthy people in India are in the cities, which are, which are kind of small enclaves surrounded by big moats of poverty. And then there's these villages that is the country that is, that is away from that. Nevertheless, it seems that there's been a tremendous expansion of the middle class in India, right. that there, uh, people who can now afford cars, can have apartments, yeah. can uh, not worry about whether or not they are going to have enough to eat tomorrow. Right. Uh, right. The middle class yeah. has expanded to the point where there may be more in the middle class in India than there are Americans, period. <laughs> I don't know if that is accurate, but it is true. There has been an expansion in middle class, mainly primarily. So, so I am a, the child of a middle class person. So my father was, uh, was a clerk in a bank, in a nationalized bank, so in a government bank. Uh, so that's middle class, right? So I will become a professor, right? And my friends who, are, who, have, who have their fathers in comparative uh, comparable vocations would start an industry, would be, start a startup, would either work in industry or so on and so forth. So, so because of the expansion of service, like government service and private enterprise, there has been an expansion of uh, the middle class. But very often, and I know you're not implying, implying that here, but very often it is sort of understood that India has, India is kind of like a, instead of a pyramid, India has become some sort of a, a rhombus or a or like a square that's balancing on one of its edges where the top is little people, a, a little number of people, and the middle is like big fat, and then you go back down to a, a very few people in poverty. Actually, that's not the case. India still is a pyramid, but there's a big middle class, and it's expanding middle class, but it still is not uh, more or even close to uh, people who, who, who really exist in poverty. Day. Is that s still because of the ancient caste system that still keeps people stratified? Right. So that's a good question. Um, um, yes, caste system is is still pretty prevalent, and and it's it's pretty prevalent um, in in India in in a social sense. So, for instance, um, if I want to marry, um, it'll be very difficult for for me to marry a girl who is. Typically, it'll be difficult for me to marry a girl who is like way up than me in the echelons of caste system or way down me. It has changed because earlier it, would have, it wouldn't even have been possible for me to marry right above and below. But that doesn't really. India is changing in, 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 in many ways. And, 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 the, and, the, and like my generation, people who are, are educated, they, they don't believe or care for caste a whole lot. But... I think you're uh, you're you're linking caste with a light with a very interesting thing, the idea of caste and economics, and that's a very interesting idea to probe, 
Because yes, caste still carries a big enablement or disablement of opportunities for you, depending on where you are in terms of economic opportunities or, or not. Because caste gives you access to networks. Um, networks is what make you or break you in terms of professional life in any open economy, just like the U.S. I mean, sure. just like our economy. We, we need networks. And we talk about this to our students all day long, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and just like that, caste gives you access to a certain kind of network of individuals because uh, because your father has been a chancellor at a university and your brother is working as a commissioner at a, an office. And you just kind of know how these things work. While if you're in, in, in lower castes, um, you just kind of don't know. You don't know those people and uh, you have no uh, guides. Right. Uh, you have no one to emulate yeah. and who's you don't, like you. Yes, and you don't have, uh, you don't know the lay of the land, you know, like what it is in real terms. So like, for instance, here we have this idea of first generation college students. And I think it's an admirable idea that we, we recognize that this person kind of need, kind of, is, is, it's not certain that this person will understand college the way someone whose dad, mom have been to college. It's just that idea transposed into a different different situation where if I am someone for, who is from the lowest of the low castes, I just don't know how to behave. I don't know the, the unwritten rules that govern colleges, institutions, offices, political offices. So one of the very interesting schemes that India has is our own version of um, an affirmative action scheme. So we call it reserva uh, reservations. So what India does is that the government of India earmarks so much percentage for people from the lower castes in its jobs. So out of 100 jobs, 40 people that are going to be hired will essentially be from lower castes. So that is how India is trying to undo the problem of caste, the problem of that kind of stratification. Because, because as you were mentioning, if you don't have anyone to look up to, what do you do? So now we have a system where, and not by now I mean post-independence, we have a system where people from lower caste are routinely hired into government service. And now you have people who can look up to other people who can see, okay, this is possible for me as well. I can also sit at this office. I can also be a professor and teach students. And that's a very, um, it, it is changing India's social fabric and network in that sense. Well, it's fascinating. And of course, uh, you were talking about uh social mobility and economic mobility, and that's even de being debated now in the United States as to whether or not the American dream is still alive, right. that uh, you can think about uh, where you want to go and all you have to do is work hard and <laughs> go to the right schools or, right. or uh, yeah. you know, I mean, uh, in many ways, I admire the fact that uh, so many people from India have been educated in the United States and then go on to become tech uh, entrepreneurs mm -hmm. and uh, leading companies like Microsoft and Google now have right. uh, people who were born in India, mm -hmm. went to college in the United States, right. and then became captains of industry. Right. Yes, yes, that's true. Um, and that's, 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 a, that's a widely occurring phenomenon uh, today that you see all of these companies, especially tech companies, being uh, spearheaded by people who have had if not their early college education, but their school education in India. So it's sort of, the education in India is very competitive and it sets you is up. Is it ITI? IIT. IIT. Yeah. Yes. So, so IITs are schools that are basically MITs of India. 
and they are getting into an IIT is, is more difficult than getting into a Harvard. And oh, if, yeah. you, if you get and there... And they're very well thought of. Yeah, and they, they, shape, and they shape you in specific ways. So you are, it's competitive, and the environment of undergraduate education in India is very different from the environment of undergraduate, undergraduate education here. And you get to compete with the best, and you just become very good at while at your game while competing. But, uh, but yeah, so, so, so because of that, I think Indian students or Indian undergraduate students, especially technical undergraduate students, have that capacity to just go ahead and, and, and ace in those, uh, in those areas. You know, a good deal of your research is based on understanding people within the lower classes in India. Yes. And uh, this is probably the best segue I can think of to go from the super educated, the super successful, the dramatic changes that are occurring in India, and uh, your research, which seems to focus on how things have failed to change. Right. Yes. And so thank you. Yeah. Yes. Things have failed to change and changed for the worse in in many cases. So I work with uh, I work with farmers in India, and I work with agrarian communities in India, and agrarian communities in India are like really really struggling um, over the past three or four decades, there has been this high incidence of farmer suicide in India. So farmers in India commit suicide by the tune of one every half hour Really, for the past decade. Um, it perhaps is the biggest wave of suicide in human history, but it's not very, very often talked about in any kind of academia. What could possibly be causing it? Right. So, so, uh, so there's, a, of course, with, with any social problem, there's many factors to it. Um, so a couple of things that what happened in India is that at that moment of liberalization, at that moment of privatization, India decided that uh, its agriculture needs to change from traditional model, community-centric kind of agriculture to a more modernized model of agriculture, not really industrialized modern of agriculture that we have here. Right? So it's not getting rid of the water buffalo and getting a tractor. It is, but the tractor is going to be owned by you who are the farmer. So if I am a farmer, I now, in, in addition to, uh, so, so let, me, let me take this like part by part, right? Um, so agriculture changed in India dramatically because India made the switch from traditional methods of agriculture to modern methods of agriculture. So new seeds that, that we call hybrid seeds, uh, which need pesticides and fertilizers, which need tractors and pumps and diesel to pump those pumps so that there's more water um, on the surface. And then you have to buy seeds every season because you can't re recycle the seeds that you have because that's how companies work. And if I'm buying a seed from company A... Like Monsanto. Like Monsanto. Uh, uh, I will also have to buy the pesticide that company A has associated with it and I am restricted in that sense. I, I buy the whole package. And then the cost of farming increases tenfold, 20-fold. And, and you're, you're looking at a very high cost, high cost-intensive cost farming. When that starts happening, you do two things. A, the government doesn't take a lot of responsibility of this. The government pushes this. But it's, it's the... It's, the financial aspect of it of this is to be borne by the farmer. So I have to take loans on my name from the banks to finance this investment 
and then hopefully my, I will reap a good harvest and have good crops and then we will we'll be able to pay this back. What happens many a times is that A, sometimes there's just no rains and the crop sort of struggles and, and, you, and you struggle and the crop fails. Sometimes what happens is that bigger countries like the United States or many European countries, they give subsidies to large agri-core. So say Cargill or Monsanto gets a subsidy off on cotton. And now they're able to sell cotton at rock bottom prices. Here in India, when I was a, where I was a farmer, I was thinking that I'm going to get so many dollars per ton of cotton. But now that so many dollars has turned into, because of market forces, it has turned come to divide by 10. So instead of giving, giving, getting $100 a ton, I'm getting like 10. And that sort of really sets me back because now I have to integrate uh, the interest on my loans. I have to pay those back because I took those loans out because I was switching from a traditional model to a model, modern method of agriculture. And those loans that have been taken out need to be repaid. And if this happens once, sometimes it happens twice and sometimes it happens thrice. And you're in a situation where now, if this happens to you three times, you're in a situation where you need more money, you can't get more money. And because you can't get more money, because, because you need more money to make little money, and you can't get that more money, you have almost absolutely nothing left and you have no way to come out of that. And that sort of pushes farmers to the edge and they're like, there's just nothing, absolutely nothing left in this because no, if, even if I work for like 25 years, I would not be able to repay what I have. And that sort of really, really has wrecked Indian agriculture. At this point, let me, let me just uh, provide a point of clarification. Many a times when agriculture is understood, or when modern agriculture is understood. And I'm talking about, and as you know very well, uh, the Green Revolution moment, you know, the invention of a, of a new seed that can be planted wherever in the world instead of having an indigenous variety that, that, uh, that gives only so much yield. Switching from that to seeds that were developed in labs of U.S. universities that were called high-yield variety seeds, the Green Revolution moment, and when you think of that technology, it's a fascinating technology. And, and there's just no two ways about it that it has done a lot to feed the world. But there is a commercial aspect to that technology. When the technology reaches the field, it's not just the seed that reaches the field. It's the financial package that is around that technology that reaches the field. And that is where most of the problem lies. Because once you're starting to sort of enter the realm of not only technology, but also commerce and loans and finances and education and, and patents and trademark violations, you are thinking of a very different kind of a system than just a high-yield variety of seeds or, or, or green revolution. So green revolution technology is pretty cool, in my understanding at least. Uh, but the financial component of that or the commercial or the commerce-related component of that that always accompanies that technology is oftentimes not talked about. And I think that's where, uh, that's the detail where the devil resides. In the so United States, there's something called crop insurance and there are subsidies. Uh, of course, subsidies are a, a double-edged sword. They uh, lull people into a false sense of security and they reduce productivity. Uh, but in, it seems to me in the green revolution has indeed resulted in more food in India. Yes. 
Absolutely. And, and, and you're right. Uh, 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 you're right. I'm not referring to the subsidies part, but you're right in, in the sense that India has a, has a weird problem today. So Indian government is facing a problem of, of granaries. We're making more food than we ever were, and India doesn't know how to store our food. Like where to put that grain? We don't know where to stock this because we were not prepared for this. And it's harvest upon harvest. There's just amazing yield. The problem is not with the yield. The problem is the financial matrix that that system is working in so that you're growing. So let's say I'm a farmer who was growing 100 tons of cotton, right? I still grow that 100 tons of cotton. The only thing is that instead of getting $10,000, I earned like $1,000. But the government or the market still gets that cotton. So India is not producing less, but the people who produce are committing suicides. So it's, it's a strange problem of plenty, a plentiful harvest, but also the people who are participating in that harvest just going hungry because all that they're doing now is, is selling produce to get money and many a times the money that they get is just not enough to cover the cost. Well, something similar has happened in the United States in the dairy industry. Right. That the dairy industry had become so productive with so many farmers being able to produce so much milk with fewer cows and quite a bit of automation and not a lot of people um, actually involved in milking the cows, thereby keeping the cost down. Uh, it also made the milk so cheap that they couldn't make enough money to pay for the overhead, what it, yeah. their overhead. Right. Uh, and um, there were subsidies that uh, tried to keep people in business, but the bottom line is their productivity actually made farming something that a lot of people uh, wanted to get out of and didn't want to pass it on to their children. Right, yeah. And But in this case, though, the, the, the subsidies are, are, are mostly given not to the not to the people, but the but the corporations. So the subsidies are actually going to the big players. The subsidies are not really going to the rank and file, low lower echelon, the, the person who's on the field. The subsidies are going to the corporation that is either manufacturing the seed or the or manufacturing the pesticide or the whole circuit or the banks that are that are giving these loans or companies that are giving crop insurance. So crop insurance has it has started in India now has something that is called crop insurance. But that insurance is it has its own kind of quirks. And uh, and and you know if you're an astute businessman, you know how to exploit those quirks to uh, promise and not deliver and still be in the game, you know. And and then uh, so the crop insurance is 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 theoretically an insurance, but that's pretty much what it is. It sounds like a racket. It's it, it is pretty. It is in in essence yes, because you're you're looking at a situation where Indian polit Indian politics, and maybe we're going to talk about democracy next because this sort of goes into there. But uh, so so the politics as it happens in India now is that very recently Indian Parliament has passed this law that uh, political parties now don't have to disclose who's funding them, like like which corporation gave them how much money. They don't have to disclose that now. Up until now, if I was a political party, I had to tell that Tim gave me this much money and, and SUNY gave me that much money and, and, and uh, University of California gave me that much money. But now I, I can just like be behind that curtain. So now you're in a situation where an agricultural insurance, crop insurance company can actually say, can actually, I'm not claiming that this happens, but potentially it can happen. And anecdotally, people have told me that it happens, that that I, in a sense, give you a lot of campaign funds 
And when you say, and when a farmer comes to the government and says, hey, there's, look, there's drought, you go, oh, what our instruments were recording this much rain. So there isn't really drought, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, so you can, you can play that kind of a game now because, because of this opacity that has percolated, the, in the, that, that has come into play. In the and if politics. I have read my international news correctly lately, uh, Narendra Modi is about ready to either be voted in or voted out uh, for another term. Right. So, so India, is, India, has, India is now in, in, in election mode. So the whole country, like 1.3 billion people are going to vote. Uh, they're going to the polls, and indeed, and elections in India are very, very interesting. They are very different from elections here, and they're very, very, they're, they're their own kind of a, their own beast, you know. Uh, it's like a party, and they, they have entertainers, and they uh, move around. It's like a traveling circus. Yeah, it's, it's, it, India still has the idea of a rally, a political yeah. rally where yeah. you march behind a certain banner for a certain cause in a certain color, and you say, this is who I am. And uh, so there's a lot of color and, 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 and flavor to Indian elections. Uh, 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 and yes, to, India is going to the polls. The polls have already started. In, polls in India take phases. So all of India doesn't go to polls at, at once. I think this time around, India is going to poll in five phases. So Texas polls on one day, Louisiana polls on something, and there's like five days in which... So it happens over states. a week's time. No, it doesn't happen over a week's time. Those five days are 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 uh, phased out. They are oh. separated. It's not five successive days. It's like, so I think April 23rd was the first day. The second day is probably going to be the May 1st, then May 7th or something like that. Right. So April 23rd, I think, is when elections started. And May 23rd is when the, poll, the results will be out. So it's like a month-long grinding process where, where politicians have to just go to polls and just talk and, and, and deliver speeches and so on. So Narendra Modi is, is of course, the front runner. He's the, he's the incumbent. He's the prime minister right now. And he's the front runner. And uh, the polls say that he would be reelected, albeit with a, with a, uh, with a lesser um, gusto this time around. So he'll have lesser uh, seats, but he still will be in power. That's where the polls sort of indicate. So your research uh, takes you to India during the summertime? That's correct. So you teach here at Oneonta uh, for um, the regular academic year, yes. and then you return to India uh, every summer. Yes. What's the nature of the research with, that you do when you're on the ground right. in the subcontinent? Fantastic. That's a wonderful question, Tim. Thank you for asking that. Um, when I go to India, I have uh, long-standing ties with these agrarian communities, right? So when I'm in India, for some part of the summer, I'm just home because you know. <laughs> yeah. But when, uh, but but my but my field site is about um, say 200 miles from my home, so 200 miles into the country. I live. I was born and raised in a state capital, so Lucknow in Uttar Pradesh is where I live, where, where my house is, and uh, I I travel 200 miles from there. To my field, so when I'm in India, I I usually go and spend the greater part of at least a month, if not more, maybe like six weeks sometimes on the field, just traveling, talking to people, interviewing them, doing a lot of focus groups, just talking to community members, talking to journalists, talking to activists, talking to teachers like you, and just trying to get a sense of what is happening here. And most of my travel is in central India. Um, 
at the border of Uttar Pradesh and Madhya Pradesh and what and and what happened and um, this region is called the region of Bundelkhand and this region is fairly arid not a whole lot grows there but a very interesting region in the sense that the, the people are very warm enterprising very hard working so they are trying to figure out their lives around this stuck i won't say stuck but but in this area that doesn't offer a whole lot of opportunities to them um so even there they find new ways to sort of deal with their problems and and when i go every successive year i try to essay two things a what are the problems and how the nature of those problems are changing and what is and what are people doing about it and what is how and and how that is changing so do you want me to talk more about that yeah absolutely <laughs> all right so so in the sense so so last summer when i was in india i actually took a bunch of uh, suni students i took four suni students with me to the research field in may and i was very glad that all four of us came back and no one got a heat stroke and, <laughs> and you know things like That's that a, so what's the temperature get to be the in the temperature the temperature was uh, 120s uh, oh, wow. around that fahrenheit fahrenheit absolutely <laughs> there and uh, and i just uh, i just bought just electrolytes like yeah. by the kilo you know not by a tablet or two but like i was i i would just like um hark on them to have water every hour to just be safe and and thankfully all of them were but but so so here's what we did so when we went back um so one of the problems that this region faces is the problem of um water so there's no water the water that's down below in the ground this we are talking about farming communities sure. so the warm water that's down below is way too deep and before you hit water you hit a you you kind of hit like a a stone wall in the earth so it's very difficult to drill through that and that's a big problem that uh, you want to farm there's land to farm and that you, you know you can do something about that but there is no water and as i told you the way agriculture is transitioning in india you're we are moving from a local indigenous varieties of seeds to more um lab designed varieties of seed which also means that we are moving from a what we are moving toward a water intensive model of our, of uh, agriculture so you need more water and there is no water so in this situation what farmers have done is very interesting so they what they started doing was that they somehow figured out that the only way that they can survive here is uh, through build through sacrificing some of their lands and we are not talking about big lands in terms of acres like we have here we have we are talking about small farm sizes like real small farm sizes uh, and people and people decide okay what we're going to do is that we're going to start making big ponds right on our farms and call them farm ponds so that when it rains instead of the water just going down and we never seeing it again we will kind of harvest our own water so you make a you you sacrifice some of the land so you're not tilling on that land anymore but you make a, a big pond there so so when it rains you have a, st- a a ready stock of water and you can use this to farm then and this this action is is not just in terms of personal action so people started doing this then there was this idea that activists a couple of activists that i that i work with they took this idea and they really liked this idea and they sort of started uh promoting this idea and motivating people to do that and when this started to create some more traction the 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 people approached the government and and they were like hey we have a model that's succeeding here in this arid land that used to produce nothing is we are producing stuff here 
what can you do for us? And the government then starts making schemes to encourage farm ponds. So over the period of the past three years or so, I have seen that uh, a wide spurt in farm ponds on each farm so that farmers have started to become more self-reliant, self, um, more enterprising, more self-reliant and thinking that this is, this is, this was my one big weakness and here's how we solve it and here's how we're going to solve this. So in my research, very often what comes up as, as my finding is that this idea that there's this, there's this rural country land with a idyllic folk that need to be you know, modernized and motivated and 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 turned into and and taught enterprise, is a very uh, is a very colonialist ideas. Everywhere where people are, they actively try to deal with their life circumstance and they they work toward it. And many a times, like in this instance, they work toward it very successfully. So when we look at agriculture or people in rural areas, wherever, and this happens in the U.S. too. Uh, in India or wherever, we need to think about them differently because this is not a, a bunch of people that's not doing anything or that, that doesn't know. They know, and they're changing their life circumstance um, every day for the better, just like we are here. Um, every well, student, when they are faced with the finals week, they know that, hey, last semester I made this mistake. This time around, I'm going to be at the gym and not not and get good sleep and not try to do three nights in a row. And that's how they change their circumstances. Well, in the United States, uh, I sometimes tell my students that uh, 100 years ago, 50% of us lived and worked on farms. And if you had told that to someone who lived 100 years ago, by 2020, only 1.5% of the American population would live and work on farms. And they would say, what are all those other people going to be doing? <laughs> right, yeah. Uh, they couldn't have imagined that. Yeah, no. And they couldn't also imagine that with 1.5% of our population, we could not only grow all of our food, but export 30% of it. Absolutely. So yeah. productivity theoretically helped us out, but that doesn't mean farming isn't risky even in the United States. Yes, absolutely. And um, if, I, if, I am, if I have my data right, uh, we, the United States has its own problem, particularly the Midwest. Uh, the Midwest has had its own tryst with farmer suicides back right. in the day where people, when these changes were happening, people were like, people didn't know what to do. Well, 10 years ago, when the economy fell out of bed, it was known as the financial uh, crisis and right. it uh, it hurt all industries yeah. and farmers didn't escape it. Yeah. And I'm, I'm talking about peers like way before that, like, like 1950s, when you were just like changing landscape of agriculture, we had problems like depression amongst farmers and farmer suicides, even here, because of the same changes that, that, uh, that uh, that were going on, but not to the tune of, of what we have in India. And, and fortunately, not to the tune of, of what we have in India, you know. Yeah. So what are the solutions in India? Right. So so that's, that's what, a good question. Yeah. Um, is that what you're studying? Is um, not only the, the phenomena that are happening, but mm -hmm. what some of the solutions might be? Right. So 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 one of the things that that I um, that's the part of my research where I st where I still need to do a lot of work as to just so I've done a part of the part of here's why what's happening is happening. I need to figure out what we can do to, for this not to happen. And many things need to be understood. Uh, first of all, um, as we were talking about, India is, is a land with tremendous diversity and variety. The idea that one solution will, is going to work 
irrespective of whether you are in Atlanta or in New Orleans or New York City or Madison or Maine, is an, is an absurd idea. It's an idea that doesn't take into account that, that locally, agriculture is very different in India from region to region, just like language. Uh, it's very different from it. Food is different in India from region to region. Why is why is North Indian food so categorically different than North in, than South Indian food? Well, because South Indian agriculture is so categorically different from 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 North Indian agriculture. So the idea that the that the state of India right now has that we're going to have one policy and that's going to take care of all all the problems is 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 a, a utopian idea. That's not. What what's gonna what's gonna solve it? We will need to somehow find ways to meaningfully empower communities so that they can solve their own problems, and they they're not continuously um, they're not uh, continuously on on a I don't know how to put it like they're on, not continuously on a on a, on an external supply of aid by the government. You need to we need to empower communities to so that they can come up with their own solutions, and they can come up with their own solutions, solve their own problems in smaller pockets of geography rather than thinking that we're going to have one solution and from the length of the breadth and the 1.3 billion people that exist in India, all are going to be benefited by that. That's not how it works in India. It, it is not how it works anywhere. No, and I India, mean, I come, so. from, I come from a small town along the Mohawk River, Amsterdam, New York, that was one of the biggest manufacturing centers in the right. state of New York in the 1930s. Well, yeah. And then they were the uh, the, where most of the rugs of the world were made. Wow, they were okay. the, the carpet-making center of the world in many ways, oh. certainly of the United States. And then um, they all moved out in the 1950s to get closer right. to the raw material in the South and get away from the unions. Right. And, and my hometown has never recovered right. and has never really known where, where right. to go or how to right. how to fix it. So I, I can appreciate what you're saying and that it's not necessarily a government solution. And a lot of people still live there. My whole family still lives there right. and I'm kind of the black sheep because I moved <laughs> away to uh, uh, to the capital district of uh, of the state and right but you're right like if you think about and it, it, even if you think about this uh, industry flight problem in the US then the problem of Amsterdam New York is going to be similar but different in character from the problem of uh, Gary Indiana or Detroit you're experiencing the same phenomenon, but in very different ways because of the scale, because of the industry, and so many and so many other things. So the idea is that when we need to think about change, we need to think about change from below instead of installing change from above. I think that's where we sort of, by we, I mean government agencies, they get trapped into the uh, into a little bit of a hubris of of the all knowing that I know, so I can fix, but that just doesn't work. So we have to somewhere acknowledge that perhaps we don't know. Perhaps communities can figure out things for themselves. Are you supported by uh, levels of the Indian government in your research? Do they want to know what you have to say? Right. So I st very strategically maintain distance from, from <laughs> the Indian government and the state, uh, mainly because uh, I want to work independently. And that's why I don't take funding or apply for fellowships to any agency. Because I work, I really want to work independently. I want, want to write and produce what I want to say just for, based on what I found instead of my loyalties sort of um, coloring what I, what I want to say. So your loyalties are to the truth and to the solution. And to the people, yes. <laughs> and to the people who are who you're studying and, yes. and communicating with. Yes. And uh, what are you excited about in the next several months about what you're going to be able to 
yield from your research and right. publish. Right, that's wonderful. Thank you for bringing that up as well. Um, I'm glad you talk about that because this is this is uh, after many, I think four or five successive summers, this is going to be one that I'm not traveling to India because for that very reason, I figured that I have a lot of data, I have a lot of findings, and they need to be out. So this summer is going to be a summer of writing and putting out a lot of uh, work that is in progress. So this past semester, two semesters, I've been working with the same kids whom I took with, uh, with me to India. And we have been kind of working toward a manuscript about how students, when they go to a foreign culture, how do they receive that culture? And how do they understand that culture shock and what that does to them? And what, what are some of the things that they can do? How to interpret that? How to make sense of all of these events that happen in a very small uh, segment of time? So that's one manuscript that I'm, that I'm working on. I am also working on two documentaries with a student here, one of our students, uh, Mr. Steve Canillo. Uh, we are working on two documentaries, one of which is on the subject of farm ponds, about what we went there, we clicked pictures, we interviewed people, we, we, clicked, we had footage, and now we are trying to just piecing, we are trying to piece it all together in a, in a coherent form to sort of tell the story of this is what is happening at this geographical location at this point of time. Um, I'm working on another documentary that just basically documents what we did on the field, uh, which is more of a, of a, here's what SUNY students' experiences were. I'm working with another student this semester on a very different kind of a project, still dealing with the agrarian crisis in, uh, in India. So that's going to be another big lit review kind of a paper that's going to come out of this summer, hopefully. And, uh, and I expect to write one paper, which I think is going to be one of the best papers that I've written. Um, and that's going to be about uh, the inability, because we are all communication people, right? Absolutely. And we, li and we like theorizing about communication and how communication works and how persuasion works and what, what things are, what messages are. But I sort of want to take a step back or many steps back and, and try to ask this question, what are, the, what are the conditions that make communication possible? Because the conditions that disable communication are the conditions that enable suicide, hmm. at least in this context that I'm looking at. People who, people who commit suicides are people who have no other way to say and be heard. They have lost they hope. Want to say. They have lost hope and, there's, and, and they cannot, A, they cannot, they, can't, they can neither say nor they can say and be heard about what they're what they're. Is there a stigma are. attached to talking about it or... Uh, families don't want to admit that they have someone who has lost hope. and I mean, do families help each other when they're in these circumstances? Yes, they do. Do neighbors help? It's a yes and yes. Yes, they do. But yes, also, there's a, there's a, there's a big stigma with this. With, because the idea of being a man is the idea of paying your bills. The idea of uh, a lone shark not knocking at your door every week. Uh, the idea of you not getting summons from the bank that you owe this much in loans and you're defaulting on your payments successively. The idea of being able to buy clothes and food and, and dresses for your family. And if you're not able to do that, uh, you, you're engulfed in a very bad kind of a stigma that prevents you from saying something because, because saying of that is also acknowledging that you failed. So in a way, the idea is, is that you internalize a lot of what is external. 
the problem ex- that exists, one of the reasons why, in my opinion, and this is where this is why it's a communication project, because it's a project of failure of communication. Yeah. Because there's no communication, because there's no articulation, because there's no vocabulary to talk about this, all one can think about is 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 silence and depression. Because there's just no way to express what you're hmm. saying. And that's what I want to want to explore. That that why is it that 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 this stigma sort of exists? What's the nature of this stigma and how we can create perhaps communicational interventions so that we can solve the problems for the better and, and have have better cultural practices that can that can change this. It's like Carl Jung and the uh, whole notion of talk therapy, uh, being able to, uh, if you can talk about the problem, the solution might be found within the talk itself. Perhaps yes. Uh, perhaps yes. It's. Uh, I, I'll tell you very interesting. I'll tell you a very interesting um, articulation of my. Of uh, I'm taking some leeway here with the, with respect to time, but I'll just go for it anyway. We've got plenty of time. Okay. Um, so uh, one of my, f- uh, I, I met a farmer, who had almost committed a suicide um, and he was rescued like at the last, last moment through interventions of friends and family and, and people because they figured that he's going down that path and I asked him so what what exactly what exactly happens in that situation what what makes you do think about this thing and he says it's like when you're hungry you know when you're hungry for a bunch of days and when you cannot provide your family for a, for an extended period of time it's like a bullet that grazes your ear. You're not killed, but you're so scared that even if I put you in a warm, cushy room for like five days, you'll never come out of that moment of just intense fear that that just that's inside you. That is what that farmer likened the experience of experiencing hunger. And he says that it's the problem is not of hunger because Maybe day, two days down, I will have food and someone will have food. A friend will help, a family will help, a, a cousin will do something for me. And I'll have, I know I'll have food. But the f- angst or anxiety or just the... And feeling like a failure. Yes. And the insecurity of hunger sort of just gets you so bad that you're not able to come out of it. And that creates barriers to communication because then you don't know what to say. You're, you're, you're dumbfounded for an extended period of time. And that sort of creates a, a, a non-communicational situation where you cannot say what you want to say. And that then exacerbates this situation of, okay, so what do I do? Well, there's one thing that everyone does, and that's that's a suicide. So that's something that I want to explore. That's a, uh, they call suicide a long-term solution to a short-term problem. Perhaps, yes. Um, and suicides are also not, there's also very interesting grammar to suicides. Suicides are not, farmer suicides are not done in, 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 a, in, a, in a very plain kind of a way, like falling from a building or something. I'm talking about a very sensitive subject, so I, with due respect to everybody who's listening. Um, farmer suicides many a times are done in a very evocative way. So a farmer will go to his field and hang him from a tree from, on his field. Or... There's a farmer who will be who will clutch his uh, little kid to him and jump off a jump off a bridge into a canal, a canal that feeds other farms. So it they, it's the farmers farmers suicides have a certain kind of grammar. They they're trying to say something, and that I think is is very important to understand the nature of this problem as being a fundamentally communicative communicational 
problem, a problem of communication. So that's why this project is a fascinating one. And that's why I like working with, with our students because, because they can pick up things, um, even from being here, that, that many times we can't. I will, can't. Will they be presenting in the student research uh, poster event? Yes, they would be. Uh, uh, I, have, uh, I have two projects related, two of these uh, projects being presented at the SUNY Undergraduate Research Conference. At, at our college, that's going to be about this, the idea that how does how does agriculture change, sort of impact communities, that's that's that, yes. How do you, what do you think of SUNY Oneonta in general and why has it been beneficial for you to be here the past, have you been here for four years now? I think I'll be done with my third year after the semester. Very good. So yes, I think very highly of this place. That's why I'm here, that's why I came here, uh, particularly uh, uh, because of the the emphasis that is placed in um, university-wide about, uh, it's a teaching school. And it's a teaching school where we are encouraged to engage with our students. And I find interactions with my students very, very valuable and very enriching. And that's why I like being here, because I like knowing students. And these students are very cool. Um, that's the best part about my job, <laughs> because I get get to meet uh, these kids who ask wonderful questions, who have good insights, who, who share interesting perspectives, and who uh, and and many a times the the the, the teacher student uh, switches flipped, and I'm learning from from my students, and I'm like, hey, I don't know if I was working working a job and I had three papers to write in the week and I had other classes to attend and a soccer match to play and a, and a, and a, and a student club meeting to go to <laughs> and three different group projects, I don't know if I'd be able to keep my mind. So I'm very, very, sometimes very genuinely impressed that these young, young students are able to shoulder what they shoulder. So, so that is very exciting about, about being at SUNY Oneonta and, and having a wonderful department that's very energetic where we have colleagues like you who do these amazing projects and other and everyone who's just doing their own interesting projects in their own regard is, is just very, very interesting. So, so that also keeps me energized here. Well, I'm, I'm very uh, covetous of your students because they have a, a great teacher who must stimulate them to think very deeply about important areas of communication. And I thank you for your generous time today. That's heartening, Tim. Thank you so much for, for having this conversation. We'll, I look forward to having more of these in future. We'll do it. We'll do it. Good. Thank you. You've been listening to an interview with Dr. Rahul Rashtogi, a professor of communications at the State University of New York at Oneonta. I'm your host, Tim Welch. And if you found this discussion interesting, please leave some comments and subscribe to our podcast called Class Talkers. <laughs>